You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 3, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome back to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson, and today I've got a real interesting interview with an interesting person. Certainly someone who's not your typical politician you might find in Washington nowadays. It's Representative Justin Amash. He has been representing the 3rd District since 2010. He was served one term in the State House in 2008 to 2010, and then threw his hat in the ring and ran against an incumbent for about two days until the incumbent announced his retirement. He then was in open primary, was successful, won the general election in a heavily Republican district in the west part of Michigan, and he's been serving ever since. Congressman Mosh is an attorney by training, and he served in the law f- firm for a brief stint before he started his political career. We're going to discuss health care in the United States, obviously. We're going to talk about some of the problems in health care and some solutions potentially, and then we're going to talk about something totally unrelated to health care, Star Trek and Star Wars, and which is better. Stay tuned for what I think you'll find a very entertaining issue. And obviously, as always, share this with your friends. Make sure you subscribe at iTunes and Stitcher so you don't miss a single episode. I hope you enjoy. Okay, welcome back to The Paradox. Thanks for joining us again. I'm here with a special guest, Congressman Justin Amash, who is a congressman from the 3rd District in Michigan. Uh, The hook for the show is, of course, there are two doctors. Well, I obviously am one, a physician, and the man sitting across from me is has his JD as Juris Doctorate, so we're going to use that as the hook and say it's okay to be on the paradox. Uh, thanks for having me here. Yeah, Eric. thanks a lot. And today's discussion, we want to get to talk a little bit about healthcare in the United States. Obviously, it's a, I mean, it's been an issue ever since I can remember. Even back in college, we were talking about in with Hillary Care at the time was one of the one of the discussions, and certainly. What's going to happen with medical school? What's going to happen with residency training? That's always been uh, something that's been a problem in the state of Michigan and other places in the rest of the country, for that matter. But let's talk about Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and sort of uh, where things are in the in the capital as far as is anything going to happen to this law, or is this kind of where it is going to stay this for the time being? I think we are where we are for the time being. Um, 
there was a lot of hope, of course, going into an all Republican controlled government that we'd get something done for the people. Um, we've been able to get a couple smaller things uh, through, um, you know, eliminating IPAB and um, that's the uh, patient advisory board. And then also uh, getting rid of the penalty on the individual mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of actually repealing Obamacare or coming up with a totally different health care system, um, we haven't able, been able to do that. Um, so we're sort of stuck with the insurance system we have now, which uh, I think is not very working very well for the American people. Right. And so when you look at for possible alternatives for the healthcare system right now, we, are, we use a certain third-party payer system, obviously, primarily, whether it's a government payer or it's insurance payers, which gives the insurance companies or CMS, the Center for Medicaid uh, Medicare Services, significant amount of power in this country. Is there... A, I know there's been talk about um, alternatives to to the system, and that the Republicans are going to push this sort of thing. Is this is this something that's really going to happen? As far as um, you know, HSAs or some sort of way of bypassing the system through direct primary care or other alternative medical systems. There are a lot of proposals out there. The question is whether there's the political will, and um, right now I don't see it. Uh, I I suspect that for the remainder of this Congress. We're not going to uh, push any further on health care or health insurance. And um, that's really unfortunate because I think one of the main reasons um, people like me got elected in 2010 with the uh, Tea Party wave is because we were going to go in there and address uh, Obamacare, which many people saw as a massive federal government overreach. And we were going to uh, do away with the excesses of the Obama administration. And um, here we are, and it seems like Republicans have largely capitulated. Um, Our leadership team doesn't seem interested in doing anything major, whether it's HSAs or any sort of uh, other move away from the um, third-party payer system we have currently. And, um, you know, I could see them giving up long ago. You could see the writing on the wall, like, in 2012 Mm -hmm. and 2013. You already saw um, a lot of talk about how we needed to keep in place a lot of elements of Obamacare. And then you basically knew that from that um, you were going to get stuck with the whole thing. Because when you ask people, um, hey, should we keep in place the most popular parts – and, and they say, yeah, and then you go for it as your talking point as a Republican Party. Well, once you keep in place those parts that people think are, are great or they, they like for one reason or another, um, you end up having to keep a lot of other parts, too, to make the whole system work as, right. as one um, unified system. So I saw the writing on the wall a while ago. I mean, when you look at the, the repeal of the individual mandate, for instance— I mean, a lot of people point to that as the the crux for for funding the pro, the the whole program, right? And so right. by re, by removing this and maintaining everything else, you're you're actually accelerating the demise of the whole structure, right? right. I mean, <laughs> it seems counterintuitive that, although I guess you could say it's a diabolical way to unravel the system, well, right? I don't think. See, I don't think they're using it in, in an effort to unravel the system, though. Right. I I think they're going to just prop it up in some other way. So they may find that there's some other um, uh, problems that arise because we eliminated the penalty on the individual mandate. I think they will find that problems arise. 
And when they do, I suspect that what they'll do is come up with some other big government um, patch to make it work again. And it's going to be more federal government um, and less uh, sort of individual control. And we will gradually move more and more toward a total federal, federal control of the system. Um, you hardly hear Republicans these days talking about uh, states handling health care. Right. It, it doesn't even come up. Like even when Republicans were debating the AHCA and other alternatives to the ACA, which were not really strong alternatives, but um, when we were talking about them, they're all really um, federal alternatives. They're not state-based alternatives. So, um, you know, I, I'm worried that you're just going to have another patch that will uh, keep the system intact and basically move us to further and further federal entrenchment. Right. And I think the thing that most people don't recognize that is confusing is that we all think of healthcare, the healthcare system as a national system. We think of Medicare and Medicaid, which are clearly national systems. But Medicaid, which is a large portion of the federal outlays, and it's actually a large portion of state outlay, right? Mm-hmm. And so a large portion of, I know I'm here in the state of Michigan, our state spends, what, a third of its budget on healthcare or yeah, something like a, that? It's, I've been out of the state legislature for a little bit, but it's a very large it's percentage. It's a large yes. percentage, far more than you, generally when people think of their state budget, they do not think of healthcare. Mm-hmm. They think of roads, they think of police, they think of jails and kind of state sort of functions. And when they think of health care, especially Medicaid, which is a federally funded for the most part, they think of the federal government and they don't think the fact that the state actually has to pay it. They can choose how yeah. they spend it with some certain rules set up by the federal government. Uh, but that sort of can cause a lot of problems, too, as far as because Medicaid is where people turn after this. The other rest of the insurance program sure. sort of falls apart, right? Yeah. Sure, and and you know I think that there might be a role for um, uh, the government in some sense as a backstop, but the problem is you have to you have to fix the underlying system. So you could have uh, a system like Medicaid as a backstop um, that uh, is there for people while you transition to a more free market system overall mm-hmm. for um, for most Americans. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not what they're doing. We're we're continuing Medicaid, growing Medicaid, and also perpetuating the other system, which is a largely federal-controlled system. Right. And <clears throat> speaking for someone in healthcare, we're we're definitely faced with problems with uh, the electronic health records. I think you know people in general think. I've always found this strange, but when it comes to computers, generally speaking, computers make life easier or make or make you more efficient or more productive, and it's. Well, not Twitter necessarily, but yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, Twitter would definitely – Facebook, um, <laughs> there are definitely some problems with social media, but, and especially if you try and mix it with medicine. That gets you in <laughs> all sorts of trouble. Uh, but when it comes to uh, the computers in healthcare, I think you can talk to just about any physician, and they will tell you that they're far less efficient with a computerized system. And with Obamacare, or let's call the the ACA to um, be more politically correct, uh, you have found that – it requires electronic health records, mm-hmm. and which is, of course, it's great if you actually make the electronic health records, talk to the people at Cerner or Epic or some of the other large systems, but it has caused a consolidation of the healthcare industry. And so if I'm a small practice of one guy or one woman out somewhere, I can't afford $10,000, $15,000 per month per provider is usually the cost of these, these systems. So you have to basically join a large healthcare system 
which consolidates healthcare and probably makes it less competitive. Yeah, and that's a huge problem. And I hear that from doctors all the time. Um, and of course, like any industry, when you have extensive regulations, you hear some of the big players saying, oh, those are fine. We don't <laughs> mind uh, those regulations. We wrote they're, them. <laughs> yeah, because they, because they did write them. You know, they, they like that because the more you can make it difficult to operate as a doctor, where it is difficult to operate by yourself, um, the more you're forced to join a large health system and you have to uh, be part of the, uh, the bigger corporation, the bigger corporate entity, and it wipes out their competitors and um, gives them more control over the doctors and over, over the patients, frankly. So um, we do need to address that. And uh, unfortunately, it seems that the trend has been toward more federal control and more control by large um, health providers, and we need to move away from that. So, if you had um, dictatorial powers, yeah, right? some people say I do in the House Liberty Caucus. Yes, I, yeah. I Just hear with you. respect to the operation of the House Liberty Caucus, which are how many people? Yeah, a couple dozen. Fourteen. 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 Yeah. 14. So. Yeah. Yeah, so you rule with the iron fist in the House Liberty Caucus, ironically. I'm a benevolent dictator <laughs> in that one. Just use the invisible hand yes. to move people. Right. right. Uh, so how would you go from – well, let's say you took over leadership in this, the House of Representatives. And let's say you had a president who just cares about passing legislation, doesn't have any ideological underpinnings for – but he just wants to make something – make things happen. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have to worry about a filibuster. How would you go from – here to where your ideal system in healthcare would be in let's say ten years. So if I were in if I were in charge of the House and Senate, well, let's just say no, you're like, the charge of the House because uh-huh. and and your ideas are so great that the Senate felt compelled to follow. Well, uh, I think you have to have um, gradual moves no matter what you do. Sure, I don't think you can um, pull the rug out from under people who are expecting a particular system. Um, you know, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid or um, even the ACA, the way it operates, mm-hmm. you, you have to gradually change things. Um, but you really want to have just as a, in a, as a broad picture, you want to have a largely free market system with a lot of competition where people can make individual choices about um, their health care, where they have a lot of options when it comes to health insurance where um, uh, pharmaceutical prices are more competitive with the rest of the world as well. And then you'd have a system that serves as a backstop. And the backstop would be for people um, who maybe have pre-existing conditions or are too poor. And you wouldn't talk about it as insurance, but rather as a government benefit. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the reason I... I think that is important is because Americans, by and large, do think there should be some sort of backstop um, that that shouldn't hinder a move toward a free market system for everyone else. That for the typical person who is generally healthy, we should have a system where they can buy uh, insurance at at a low price, where there's a lot of choices, a lot of competition. And then for someone who is in a very dire situation, you decide what is an appropriate level of benefit from the federal government. And now the federal government can't provide everything because obviously um, if, 
people really wanted to spend all the money. You could keep people um, alive in all sorts of circumstances where um, normally they wouldn't make that decision. Mm-hmm. You know, but if the if there's unlimited resources dedicated to it, um, you might do that. So you're you're going to have to decide as a society because we don't have unlimited resources. Anytime you have the government involved and there's like a backstop, you're going to have to decide as a, as a society what is it that we want to provide? What is the limit? How far do we want to go? And that some people are going to be uncomfortable with that, but that's the only way it's, it's going to work. You can't have unlimited resources dedicated to things. So I'd say a free market system uh, on the whole and then um, some kind of um, backstop where the government is involved and it's providing benefits, not, um, not treating it as though it's some kind of insurance. Um, we should just be honest about what we're doing. Uh, when you have a pre-existing condition and the government um, says you're going to get insurance no matter what at the same price as someone else, well, we shouldn't call it insurance. We should be honest and say it's a benefit. That's not um, to say that's good or bad. It's just we should be honest about what it is. Because I think when we talk about insurance in the wrong way, it um, leads people to make a lot of bad decisions about the system. Like. Insurance should be insurance. Right. And, I, and, yeah. and benefits should be benefits. And we shouldn't confuse the two. Right. I think, it, yeah, insurance, you, you don't buy insurance. In the, in the likely event something's going to happen, you buy insurance for the unlikely event something right. happens. Right. I mean, I think it's not for the general maintenance of anything. I know people have used the analogy about a car all the time. It's not going to pay for your oil changes. Car insurance pays for yeah. when you get in a collision with a, a deer or something. And I think, I think the definitions matter. The talking about them correctly matters because – if people talk about insurance but don't really mean insurance, what they really mean is benefit, it leads you to make all sorts of bad decisions about the policy. Um, it, it leads to confusion about how our insurance system should work because you're no longer talking about insurance. You're talking about a benefit system. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we need to really separate the two, have a, a free market healthcare system where people can buy insurance and all, have all sorts of options out there. If they want to buy very little insurance, they're, they're able to buy very little insurance. Um, if they want to buy a lot, they can buy a lot. And then a, a separate backstop um, with some understanding by the people that there's going to be a limit on, um, on how much uh, they're going to get, that they can't be unlimited. It can't be an unlimited backstop. And then also, um, I think you have to equalize the uh, employer um, benefit uh, with respect to insurance versus individual purchase of insurance. You have to um, expand HSAs. Um, one way you could do that is you could have each person have an HSA and um, at, at the start in a transition from the current system you allow employers to put money in the HSA uh, for the employee and um, and uh, potentially have even the government giving a tax credit or something that can mm-hmm. be put into an HSA initially. So basically having pre-tax dollars go into yeah. your, ins- your insurance, which is, w- which is why the, the initial benefit for health insurance existed in, to begin with, right? Sure. Because there were controls and wages in the, what, the 50s? Or, yeah. Was, and, that, right. and so, and so it's a benefit to try and attract workers. You had to provide insurance, which you could do, and it was inexpensive at that time, so you could provide a lot of benefit for a little amount of money. Right, and, and so we should equalize the treatment and find a way to um, get people into HSAs and, uh, and get them thinking about their own health care and thinking about how much they want to spend and making 
um, independent decisions rather than having the government decide these things or you know some bureaucrat decide it. Um, we want the market to work. We want doctors to again like think about how much procedures cost. Um, you know, yeah. None of that seems to mean anything anymore. You know, uh, and I and it never since ever since I've been in medicine. And talking to people who have been in medicine a lot long, far longer than I have, no one really had a handle on how much things cost. It's there's no other business like that I'm aware of. I think even 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 lawyers know how much they charge per hour and right. how much things cost. Right? They can give you an idea. I mean, sort of like going to a mechanic, right? You don't know exactly how much it's going to cost when you mm-hmm. lift up the hood and find out and fix it. You at least have an idea what your charges per per labor and for yeah parts and stuff, right? Sure. You're a doctor. I mean, you know more than anyone. I, I, I'll go to doctors and I might ask them how much this is going to cost. And they'll tell me they don't know. Right. And, <laughs> I don't know. And it's not only it. it, it <laughs> yeah, it's that's be great. Right. Going to the grocery store. Like, how much eh, go to the register. We'll find out. We'll right. Find out afterwards. We'll see how much. Just bill your insurance. And we'll here's some out. steak. I'm not sure how much it might be. Three hundred dollars a pound when you get there. Uh, but part of that is because is actually because of federal laws that that don't allow you to disclose prices and or certainly to uh, you're not allowed to have provide discounts. You're not allowed to provide any sort of charity care. And I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. You have different contracts, different insurers, right? Some insurers command a certain rate than others. So like your rack rate, you've got your rack rate, which no one ever charges except the person mm-hmm. who has no insurance. Uh, you mentioned pharmaceuticals, and it's always been interesting to me because. You look at the pharmaceutical costs in other countries, like as exotic as Canada and Mexico, you know, as yeah. far away <laughs> in a whole, oh, it's the same hemisphere actually. And it turns out that their drugs are oftentimes much less mm-hmm. and it's for exactly the same medication and oftentimes producing the exact same physical plant, right? And so it's not because, to my knowledge, that it because there's any sort of extra charge that the the US government charges it's because those, a lot of those countries have limitations in how much they're they allow the mm-hmm. the pharmaceuticals to charge for right and so if you're a pharmaceutical company you it costs you some sort of amount of money to make something and so you decide well I need to make this much back but I can only charge this much in those other countries I know I need them to use it because they'll have studies and you know show effectiveness and you know people and I'd at least get something out of it but I could try and make the bulk of it in the United States. So why wouldn't the United States just say, hey, you can get your drug anywhere? Mm-hmm. Would it, I mean, wouldn't that be a very easy bill to pass? I mean, I, it yeah. seems it's puzzling to me why I this think, is, that hasn't happened. I think there's a worry that these pharmaceutical companies will um, will leave the U.S. and they'll, you know, take up residence somewhere else, I guess. In Germany? Um, I guess. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, again, I think that we should open it up and allow some more competition, allow things to cross borders, and you would find prices dropping uh, dramatically in pharmaceuticals. Um, and look, uh, it is because the it's it's because of the laws of the other countries. Um, so you know, even that could be discussed. There could be some discussion between the countries. I mean, <laughs> the president's talking about renegotiating NAFTA. Well, right there, you go. I mean. Um, why isn't this a talking uh, point, some kind of uh, part of the discussion? So we can find ways um, to improve the system so that our pharmaceutical costs are lower because they are a big portion of healthcare costs. Um, I, I think doctors know better than I do um, you know, what percentage of the overall healthcare costs that would be, but 
It is definitely a big portion. We talk to um, people when they think about healthcare costs, they are often thinking about pharmaceutical costs. Oh yeah, pharmaceuticals and imaging. I mean, those are two large ones, and it just it's it surprises me that it's so. It seems like an easy thing unless unless I were to try and figure out how much money comes from pharmaceuticals into Congress. If that 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 would influence it, obviously, right? I mean, that is obviously a big influence. Yeah, I think that a lot of members of Congress receive um, funding from pharmaceuticals. I would imagine that the pharmaceutical companies do um, what the defense contractors do, which is they spread out their facilities throughout the United States (laughs) and make sure they're in as many congressional districts as possible so that they have some influence. Um, So, um, yeah, I I think that does have an impact. And it's not because of just the money they give you. So... um, uh, well, not me, but they're giving you know other people. Yeah, I'm, for full disclosure, how much money do you get from our pharmaceutical companies? Uh, I don't know, but I'm it's very little. Um, <laughs> so if if anything, so I think that um, it's it's the pressure they put on the members of Congress when they tell them, look, we have all of these jobs in your district. And if you do X to us, we're going to have to take these jobs out of your district and move them somewhere else. That's the pressure they feel because they they then feel some electoral pressure. So it's not about the um, it's not just about at least the check that they're getting. It's about other political pressures. And and certainly not just and votes, probably not as much concerning as the fact that you get the headline the, uh, the right. Bayer, Bayer plant closing your town and that's your biggest town in your district yeah, and, and they say thanks if to, only <laughs> if only congressman so and so had not like voted no on this then um, you know or yes or whatever the case may be uh, then we wouldn't have closed this plant right so so then how do you uh, I guess I still understand why we can't do something like if it were to happen if that were to happen wouldn't you be able to would they just not sell drugs in Canada? I mean, what? How? How would the pharmaceutical? If you were to pass some law saying you can get your drugs anywhere you want, mm-hmm. and the, the FDA would be the one who's probably in some ways blocking this too on this on some level, right? Yeah. Because there's a concern that the integrity of the medications you're getting from other countries. But I will say that they they waive those laws <laughs> as soon as there's a shortage in this country, which we've had a number of. I I can't begin to tell people. I mean, if you're a physician listening, as you obviously know, but if you're not, there are. Tremendous shortage of all kinds of medications. For instance, we have no Dilaud in this country that I'm aware of at this point, which mm-hmm. is a common pain medication. We had no propofol, and as an anesthesiologist, that's what we use almost put almost everybody to sleep with and mm-hmm. to wake up and for sedation. So we were buying it from that's Europe. Disturbing. Yeah, yeah, we were buying it all from Europe, and so I would get vials that was that was like in Romanian that had. That <laughs> <laughs> so it must have been it must be okay in emergencies for the to buy medications yeah. from other countries. So. It, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's frustrating. It, it is very frustrating, and um, it's something I think that can unite Republicans and Democrats. I don't think it's a partisan political issue. I hear about it from Bernie Sanders. I've heard about it from <laughs> President Trump. Um, I've heard about it uh, from you know others in Congress on both sides of the aisle, and. Um, I think it's something we can all get behind, um, but it seems to me there's probably some powerful um, block of Congress who are not really interested in moving forward or something. Okay. So then the other big one to talk about is Medicare. Mm-hmm. And Medicare has been around for quite some time, since before you and I entered this world. Yeah. And so it's 
ingrained in everyone's mind that when they turn 65 or whenever they they qualify for Medicare. I've talked to a lot of my a uh, lot of patients, a lot of people who once they hit Medicare, I mean, it's not the panacea of of insurance and ability to get seen as they thought. They thought once they got they you know got rid of their private insurance, well, whew, now I'm on Medicare. Now mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about insurance anymore. Although it turns out that a lot of places won't see you. I mean, it's hard finding if finding physicians who'll take care of you because the payment rate is obviously not what it is for commercial. Yeah, for the, a lot of those physicians. So, what would you do to what do you how do you propose to, to fix Medicare or because by all indications, its funding is in trouble too, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess we can print yeah, I mean, as much money as you want. It will eventually be the biggest program in government. I think it will um, surpass Social Security at some point um, because it has the, um, I guess, uh, it has like a dual problem. It's not just that, um, you know, people get it in retirement and people are living longer and all that, like Social Security. Right. But it's also... Healthcare. So, <laughs> as long as healthcare costs, and old people, <laughs> healthcare costs keep going yeah. up, and you're dealing with retired people, um, yeah, it's the costs are going to go up, and it's going to be very expensive, and will uh, very shortly, along with Social Security um, and military spending and Medicaid, consume the entire federal budget. They, there will only be those programs. Everything else will be borrowed. Um, I mean, only those programs would be paid for and everything else would be borrowed. Right. So, and we're getting very close to that point. So, um, you know, it, it's something that has to be addressed, but addressed gradually. I uh, have always believed that programs like this should really be handled at the state level, not at the federal level, that um, maybe there should be some kind of uh, more unified government program uh, to deal with retired people and people who are in need, um, you know, like uh, Medicaid, sort of um, some kind of like fusion between the two that would operate mostly at the state level. And then at the, um, on the whole, people would just have a free market system. I think that if you had a more competitive free market healthcare system, which we've never really had, I mean, we haven't had that. Um, any time in recent history. People like to think that um, uh, someone is suggesting we go back to the pre-Obamacare system. That's not what I'm suggesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. That was not a free market system. We want to go to a, a truly free market system. And I think prices would go down significantly um, if you had a more free market system. And people would find that something like Medicare is not as useful that actually they like the market system. Mm-hmm. They like um, going through the normal healthcare system and perhaps getting insurance and, um, and deciding what they want to insure and what they don't want to insure. Uh, but again, you should find some way to consolidate sort of government healthcare, um, put it into uh, one system and maybe have each state um, handle the system, not the federal government. So do you understand... Uh and I, I can't for the life of me figure this out. Why we well, would pay? If you can't figure it out, then I probably can't. Oh, I, so, <laughs> so when it comes to Medicaid, it is a it is a state run program, right? Yes. Paid for in part, large part, by federal dollars, mm-hmm. right? 
So why do we pay taxes to the federal government to then send back to the states? Wouldn't it be? It doesn't make any sense. Would it be more efficient just to have the states provide the healthcare for their system and Medicaid system? I mean, was there a time when the disparity was so great that between the states that it? Because they don't equalize things anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, so I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't tell you um, why it originated that way. Uh, you'd have to look back and, and see why it was created that way. But it's true of so many things in government. Um, you could go into education and ask why. <laughs> why are we sending some percentage of our money to the federal government only to have it sent back to us um, with strings attached? It doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I think if you had. Um, state tax dollars going to it and um, and had the state government also administering it, it would operate a lot better. The, the other thing that people need to keep in mind is that because the federal government doesn't have to balance its budget, um, we're putting a huge burden on future generations. So are they not going to have printing presses in the future? <laughs> so the State governments largely have to balance their budgets. I'm not sure there's any that doesn't have a balanced budget amendment. It, it might be the case. I don't know. But well, they don't uh, have. They can't print their own currency, the, right? They can't so. print their own currency. So um, the, but uh, they can't borrow um, indefinitely, right? They have to balance their budgets. Um, every state government that I'm aware of, and you, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, has some kind of balanced budget amendment um, requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, in their constitution or, or maybe statutorily. But they have some requirement they have to balance their budget. Why is that important? Because it means when things are not working properly, you have to correct the problem. When, when, <laughs> when this, the money going out is not matching the money coming in, you have to address it. You either have to um, find ways to make the program more efficient or more cost-effective, or you have to raise taxes. You can't just borrow from someone and um, and spend it, you know, now and expect someone to pay in the future. With these large programs like Medicare and Medicaid operating and Social Security operating at the federal level, we are uh, putting a huge burden on future generations who end up um, massively in debt. They are not the beneficiaries of the spending but they will be the people who essentially owe the money down the road um, or who face the consequences of the money that's mm-hmm. owed. Let's put it that way. So um, let it happen at the state level and the people of those states can decide, do I think that this is worthwhile? Do I think this is a worthwhile use of my tax dollars? Um, they will put more pressure on the legislature. Let's say the legislature says we have to raise taxes to fund this program. Maybe people say, okay, I do think we should raise taxes, but we also should make some reforms. And they can force the hand of the um, state legislature much more easily than at the federal level. Because at the federal level, I think a lot of people are just content with the idea that we can spend it now and pay for it never. You know, <laughs> that's um, always a good <laughs> budgeting strategy, if possible, because they feel like it's it's cheap, right? Um, there's no consequence as far as they can see. Nothing bad is happening, because they're not um, thinking about the um, you know uh, midterm or um, uh, you know like um, I think mid, I mean mid distant future or or. Uh, yeah, long, long distance. Long distance. Your yeah. grandchildren, right, or whatever. Right. Yeah. 
-hmm. They're thinking about the near term only. So uh, I think if we had it at the uh, state level, you'd resolve a lot of that. um. It certainly forced difficult decisions, right? I mean, at a minimum is what you're saying, right? Right now you can make make easy decisions because there's no consequence to whatever whatever you decide. If you cut it massively or if you significantly raise it, it doesn't make a difference, right? I mean, when you think about it, what incentive do federal legislators have to reform the program because they don't see any negative consequence in the near future. Most of them are just thinking election to election. And uh, they're like, well, yeah, this is a problem 10 years from now, but I won't be in Congress. That's that's how a lot of them are thinking. Mm-hmm. So they don't care. They'll be on to something else. And, um, and some of them probably think it's 20 years from now. So they just they're not that interested in resolving it. You, you have to force legislators to resolve it. You have to force people um, to think about it in the near term, where, boy, if I don't resolve it this year, I'm in real trouble because our budget's not going to balance and people are going to blame it on me. Right. Yeah, so I, I think that's really important. So then uh, Bernie Sanders and many others talk about Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. And they talk about if only we could have Medicare is a great system, which I already said, I think there's some serious significant problems with Medicare, not only from a funding standpoint, but also from an access standpoint for lots of lots of people. Although access even for regular private insurance now is becoming more of an issue. But for Medicare for all, so everyone has access to Medicare, it make it simpler. There's which I never understand why I would believe this since it's just one federal system, it'd be there'd be less forms to fill out. <laughs> fill out, uh, but it'll be at least more efficient, right, than having to deal with, negotiate 20 different contracts with 20 different private insurers or whatever. What would your elevator pitch be to say, to, to point out to someone that that's, there's, a, there's a fallacy in thinking that Medicare for all is a good solution to healthcare problems now? Well, I mean, for one thing, the, the problem of healthcare is an economic problem, kind of like anything else. Um, it's, a, it's a problem of resources, limited resources, and how we um, allocate those resources with dispersed knowledge. So people, have, <laughs> people around the country have knowledge, it's different knowledge. Um, the federal government is not like a repository of all knowledge, it's spread throughout the country. Isn't there a Library of Congress? Does this not- <laughs> right. And so doctors and patients know a lot of things that federal officials don't about healthcare and about how to treat someone in the most efficient way. Um, And when you have a one-size-fits-all sort of federal program run by federal bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., I think you undermine the power of the market, you undermine the efficiencies that are out there, you, um, again, go back to that problem I talked about before where taxpayers essentially are not footing the bill for the cost of the program, what ends up happening is future generations foot the bill. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the government feels free to just keep expanding benefits at enormous costs without ever thinking about what's gonna happen to us 20 years from now. (laughs) Because they're not thinking about 20 years from now, they're just thinking about the next year. How can they get reelected? So you you create, a lot of bad incentives to run a system that is way too costly, way too inefficient, and um, does not provide the best health care possible. I mean, they're going to find ways to cut corners, too, to make it, um, you know, uh, 
to make it work as best as possible, they're going to find ways to cut corners as well. Right. That um, that we wouldn't find acceptable in the private market. And and to uh, one example, sort of the insidious nature of Medicare or CMS or whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I experienced as a as a medical student, and it's one of those little things that you notice that happens, and that it's not until you kind of think about why it's occurring till you you realize what you know the ultimate cause. So. Basically, when when people used to train as physicians, they were it was an apprenticeship, right? I mean, you have your didactic courses where you learn, you know, your bio, your physiology and biochemistry and whatever, and then you go onto the floors and you practice medicine under the advice under the um, care of a you're under a resident or a, a fellow or uh, attending, but primarily you're working with residents and you're learning how to sort of be a resident or how to learn to be a doctor in training, mm-hmm. and then you go into residency and you further learn, especially a tra- in, within your training. And then, um, so initially as a medical student, you would evaluate the patient, you might draw some labs, you might do everything as far as write the note and talk about the care of the patient. You report this to your resident who would then keep track of this stuff and that's how you take care of the patient. They would report to the attending if there are any questions or concerns. And then what happened is CMS said, well, you can't have medical students providing the care for all these patients, that's crazy. I mean, these guys don't know anything. And so then they require that the, the medical students they can do whatever they want. They can write notes. But the notes that they write have to be co-signed by the resident. So the resident has to verify everything they said. Mm-hmm. We just need to check that the resident actually saw this. So, of course, what happens? For a couple years, some programs are bad at figuring this out, and so they don't get paid. Mm-hmm. They, they learn the lesson quickly. And then, well, we can't have – got to make sure the, the attending knows what's going on. So the attending has signed the note. So, what to, so then what happens is the resident basically has to do all the work – the medical student can do all the work they want, but the resident can't use that note or use that work done. And so just the atten- So what happens, of course, is that now the attending is doing all the work. Well, you say, well, that's pr- better care for the patient because they don't have a medical student taking care of them. But they're not helping with the training process because now the, the work and the, the knowledge and the learning done by the medical student is totally disregarded. It's not a focus of the, of the education. Mm-hmm. They are a bystander. They happen to be around when there's care is being taken. And, it, and if you're not forced to make decisions and have any consequences to them, you won't learn. That's right. With anything in life, right? Yeah. And so, and in many ways, even with the residents, they're, they're, and so what happens, of course, is that they've, as you have less sort of in the game, it takes longer to get the same training that it took someone before. Yeah. In a day, in an era where things are far more complicated. You talk to someone who trained in the 1980s, and there are about you know 20 drugs that you can give someone in the hospital. Now there are you know a thousand, and so it's completely changed the game as far as so that sort of thing. It's a it doesn't allow the innovation, doesn't allow sort of it it it's the one size fits all system sure. or whatever, and that and that can cause a significant change in healthcare, which the average person doesn't know. But I know anyone listening to this who's a physician or training, they absolutely know what I'm talking about because as a medical student, you are at best to tag along now. I mean, it's it's a big deal, and sadly, you're paying a quarter million dollars for that education. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that is uh, that's a huge problem, um, and it's it's happening in the medical field. It happens elsewhere. Um, you know, like I, I have staff in my office. I always like to um, allow the staff person assigned to do the work, and um, obviously, we'll uh, look over. But that person has to do the work. You know, you've got to, you have to train people. People right. have to learn. They have to learn on the job. And it cannot be the case that um, some, uh, you know, 
uh, higher up is always essentially operating the, the system and calling all the shots and making all the decisions because you never teach people then. And um, like you said, that has huge costs down the road that aren't always visible to people. Right. Like you don't see them <laughs> at first. But down the road, then you end up with doctors who aren't as trained and aren't as qualified. And that is, I mean, you see, if you talk to anyone in medicine now and they see people who are coming out of residency, they are not as equipped to be on call by themselves and to take care of patients right out of residency because they have lost that training. In fact, when I was at, when I was at Iowa training, they would, the residencies were excited to get residents or to get medical students from Iceland. To, as residents, because they yeah. basically operate as residents when they're in Iceland as medical students. So there were no residents. There are no residencies in Iceland. Iceland is very smart. They say, we're not going to train any doctors. We're just going to send all our medical students to other countries. They'll train and they'll come back here and they'll be attending. So that way, our medical students get great training because they're, they basically function as the, the understudy, I guess you'd say, for someone who doesn't know what, for the, what a resident is. Uh, and then they're, they're once drawing the blood. They're doing all the tests and they're doing all the examinations and the notes. And then they come back and they're going to be, and so they were fantastic residents because they came in as, I mean, like a, like a senior resident from oftentimes. And it was, it was pretty amazing. And so I, you know, that's just a small example, I guess, you know, when you're unable to, you're certainly unable to innovate when you well, have just one system, right? I mean, right. it's an example of unintended consequences and, um, uh, whether you're a legislator or a doctor, those are things to think about, and um, they have a huge impact on our system. And it's it's similar to the point I made about um, the, how the federal government doesn't have to balance its budget. I mean, right. if the federal government doesn't have to balance its budget, guess what? It's not going to balance its budget. Just like if a doctor doesn't have to learn, he's not going to learn. Uh, and uh, you know what? <laughs> you if you know. if you don't make a kid make his bed, it'll never get made yeah. ever. And if he does, that's probably a significant psychiatric problem. Yeah. <laughs> Before you don't make his own bed without being asked. Uh, so one other question, you're well known to be, to be a fan of science fiction. Yes. So Star Wars, Star Trek, uh-huh. which is better, and, <laughs> and, what, and why would you say, what, what do you prefer one over the other? Oh, man. So, I mean, I guess if you had to label me, I'm more of a Star Trek guy. Right. I, I figured that, but it's uh, probably the most, if, as a libertarian, right, it's, it seems like it's less... Less libertarian than Star Wars in some ways, right? Maybe? In some ways. I mean, it's a very libertarian um, show. I mean, the the prime directive, the idea that they're not supposed to interfere in the development of a civilization, an alien civilization, um, is a very libertarian concept. And um, it is the prime directive. I mean, <laughs> that is like, that's that means really important directive, right? So... Um, a lot of the episodes, particularly, you know, when you go back to the original series, revolve around that concept. And um, I think maybe it was a, a, a tool that the writers of the show used to explain why they're not always fixing all the problems everywhere. <laughs> you know, like, how do we avoid, like, we've got all this power. Um, you know, we're sailing around the galaxy and like, how do we avoid, uh, having to fix everyone's problems? Well, oh, we'll have this prime directive where they can't interfere. Um, but actually it ends up, uh, being a great thing and a very libertarian device. And it, it goes throughout the episodes. And, um, when I was a kid, I watched the original series. I would like tape them at night. Oh, they were, you did. Yeah. Did you? Yes. They were, uh. 
they were replaying the original series. You know, obviously it was well before my time. It was from the 60s. But they'd put, replay them at night and I'd record them on a VHS tape. <laughs> and um, My kids have no idea what that is. Yeah. The, so for anyone listening, that was like a, a device we used to record to th- record things. It was like a large plastic um, <laughs> I used to have device. five and a quarter inch so, floppy disk. That was a big deal. So... Um, you know, and I watched them the next day, and it was great. Um, but, you know, as I got older, I started to get into Star Wars, and Star Wars is also very libertarian. It's, uh, you know, the idea of um, these rebels taking on uh, this vast the empire. empire, right? You yeah. know, that's, that's very libertarian. So the one thing that never made any sense with Star Trek is, is the money situation, right? You have... <laughs> you have Apparently, society with no currency. Well, because there's... So there's, there's no scarcity or something like that. I'm not... Right. They're so but, advanced that they've resolved but then, that. But then, and that's fine, I guess, if you're going to go... I, I'll allow any movie or anything to have one sort of device that will say, okay, it makes no sense, but we're going to allow you to have this. But then why do they have these Ferengi guys who are, like, obsessed with gold <laughs> if there's no, like, currency yeah, or anything? Yeah, that doesn't that, make a lot of sense, actually. Okay. I, why? I never figured out if there was some part of the, the universe was not making sense. No, because you'd think the Ferengi had also reached that state where... They were living with them, right? profit doesn't matter and all that. But, um, yeah, I can't explain that. Okay. Um, I can't explain. But, obviously, if there's enough productivity in a society and it's technologically advanced enough, um, profit doesn't matter as much. I mean, it, there, there will be, like, a certain minimum level of wealth that is produced just because... There's just so much wealth. I mean, the yeah. the standard of living goes up so that even what would be considered a poor person would be um, very rich by our standards. Right. Well, and you, you see know. that in, this, in our country today, too, yeah. right? I mean, sure. you definitely see people who are, you know, you have a phone even if you're the very poor. I mean, the, yeah. the poor in this country are richer Compared than most people in the rest of the yeah. world. Right. And so your basic needs are generally met in this country, right? Right. And that's a, that's a factor of productivity and mm-hmm. our technology and our, our economic system. And yeah, if you had a system in the future um, that was uh, very free market oriented and, and um, we had amazing technology, yeah, you could get to the state where um, maybe money is not as relevant. Um, you're certainly going to eat, right? Yeah, you're going to have a high standard of living with very little. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thanks so much. I appreciate you for being on and uh, I'd like to recommend everyone in the audience to share this with your, your friends and colleagues. And if you're a physician out there, make sure you give this to your your family so they understand a little bit more what we're going through in medicine. I'd like to thank do- Dr. I almost said Dr. Ramash. JD. Like He's it. a JD. Right. That's right. That's the hook, right? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever used that? <laughs> no, I've never used it. Never used it. Uh, it's, it's sort of like reminds me there are people who are doctorates, of course, you know, in the yeah. hospital, but no one in the hospital actually uses the term doctor unless they're a physician <laughs> or maybe a dentist or a podiatrist or something like that. But anyway, uh, so thanks again for being here and um, good luck in your campaign, I guess, this fall. Thanks. Not sure when people are going to be listening to this, but <laughs> but uh, we'll see you later. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>